this is past month and been studying it and just really trying to get a handle on it. Um, I'm just really excited. And uh, there is some glorious truths in, in this gospel that we're going to see. So this morning, um, all I'm going to do, all I want to do is really just lay the groundwork for you and prepare us for this study. Uh, lay out some goals. What are we going to be aiming at in this study of John? I don't know what you think about when you think of the Gospel of John. Maybe it's John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. Maybe it's the basics of Christianity. This is the book that we give to unbelievers. It's the book we give to new believers, and I think that's appropriate. Maybe it's the simplicity of its language. Maybe it's these stories that aren't found in any other gospel, like the raising of Lazarus or the changing of water into wine. Maybe it's Jesus' conversation with the woman at the well or Nicodemus in the new birth. Perhaps it's the I am statements of Christ. Or maybe it's Jesus' conversation with the disciples just hours before he goes to the cross. And in the history of Christianity, the Gospel of John has been of such massive importance in the church. It was central in the early debates of the Arian heresy. Um, and since then, it has been the topic of innumerable sermons and lessons and books and tracts and pamphlets and thousands of other forms of literature and, and media. This has been massive book and one that you are very familiar with, I'm sure, um, and has stood apart um, as one of the most loved um, of the books of the Bible. So the question is, Michael, if it is so popular and its contents are so familiar, um, and it's usually the book we give to new believers or unbelievers, then why are you going to preach it um, to us this this morning and make a series out of it. Certainly, I do not pretend to have any secret insights in this book that no one's ever seen before. Um, I do not want to uh, dismiss all the teaching that you've probably heard on it, um, which is certainly true and, and accurate. Um, nor do I want to imply that some of the clearest gospel expressions are not found in this book and that it shouldn't be used for unbelievers and new believers. It should. The question is, why preach it to a group of growing, immature believers, as you are? And the reason is because we desperately need this book. It's because, as we'll see, the truths about Christ and the gospel that it sets forth are not just for new believers or unbelievers. We need these truths. The truths that it presents, despite how familiar they might be, are infinitely rich in glory and in preciousness that we will never exhaust, even in eternity. We're going to study this because one of our highest callings and duties and privileges as a Christian is 
see and behold and come to know more and more the glories of Jesus Christ. And that is what this gospel is about. And yeah, there's going to be a lot of other practical applications from this gospel. And you can just think of Jesus' conversation with his disciples and washing the feet and all of these other practical applications for the Christian life. But all of those fall under this main purpose, which is to see and behold the glory of Christ. That is what we are after. It's that Christ would take up center stage in our lives, that we would be filled with a knowledge, reverence, affection, submission for this Christ more and more and more. This is not simply a means to another goal. This is the goal. This is why we were saved. John 17, 3, this is eternal life. That they know you as the only true God and who? And Jesus Christ, whom you sent. This is the goal. This is why you're saved. This is why you were made. And this is what we're after in this study. So in order to establish the goals of our study, um, we really need to see what John's goals for our study, uh, for the book of John is. Why did John write this gospel? What was he after? Um, and then after we identify what John was after and what his goals were, then our goals will become more clarified and, uh, and more certain. And John actually tells us very straightforward what his purpose is in writing this gospel. So I'd like to invite you to turn with me to John chapter 20. We are going to begin at the end. John chapter 20, begin at verse 29. While you're turning here, I will pass out our outline for... John chapter 20, we're going to begin in verse 29. You probably know this story to the very end of this uh, story about unbelieving Thomas. And um, Jesus declares something to Thomas in verse 29. Chapter 30, verse 29. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. Verse 30. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that by believing, you may have life in his name. That is why John wrote his gospel. So I just want to take a few minutes here and just unpack these verses for us and think about their implication on our lives as believers who have already made this confession. So in these verses, we get two ways that John reveals his purpose for his gospel. How is John presenting his purpose for his gospel? Verse 29 gives us the paradigm for John's readers. This is Jesus' paradigm. This is John's paradigm for those who are going to be reading the gospel. Thomas, like the rest of the eyewitnesses, the rest of the disciples, were eyewitnesses for the risen Christ. Just a few verses before this, 
Uh, you know very well, Thomas did what? He refused to believe unless he actually physically sees and touches the risen Christ. Look up at verse 25. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But Thomas said to them, unless I see his hands, in his hands the marks of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, place my hand into his side, I will never believe. And so Thomas is characterized by unbelief, clearly not positive in light of the whole gospel, demanding um, signs, demanding to see. But Jesus is very merciful, gracious to him. Look at verse 27. He actually gives him exactly what he demands. He says to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands. And put your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve. Literally, I think it's, don't be an unbeliever, but a believer. Believe. To which Thomas responds with this mountain peak confession of this gospel. This is the same confession that John is after. wants every one of his readers to make this. Look at it, verse 28. And Thomas answered him, My Lord, my kurios, the Old Testament word for Yahweh, my Lord and my God. The confession of the crucified and risen man, Jesus Christ, as Lord and God, is the confession of all true believers. And look now at how Jesus responds to this confession in verse 29. Jesus says to Thomas, and I think it's, it's, a, it's a statement. I don't think it's so much a question. There's some debate here. Um, the original language could go either way. I think it's better translated. You have believed because you've seen me. Blessed are those who have not seen and have yet believed. I think what's going on here in verse 29 is... Not so much Jesus rebuking Thomas's faith. Yeah, his unbelief was wrong, but his faith here is genuine. He genuinely believes, and Jesus commends that. And he says, the basis of your faith, just point out where his, the basis of his faith is, is he has seen it, and he believes. And Jesus now takes the next step beyond now the eyewitnesses of the disciples to the readers of John's Gospel, to those who are going to be coming after the eyewitnesses, who are not going to have the same privilege of sight, physical sight, physical touch. Um, what about their faith? In fact, none of the readers of John's Gospel in the first century and today have had this same experience of seeing the risen Christ and of touching the risen Christ. And so the question is, is our faith somewhat deficient? Are we perhaps a little less advantaged, a little more disadvantaged than the first eyewitnesses? Do we have any good excuse to have less confidence than the original eyewitnesses? That's the question. Well, look at the next line in verse 29. Yet, Thomas, you've seen and so you've believed. But blessed, blessed are those who have not seen and have yet to believe. This word blessed is the beatitude word. It means genuinely happy, genuinely accepted by God. Well, who is that? It is those who share the same confession of faith that Thomas did, but who do not share the same experience that Thomas did. And the point I want to make is that according to Jesus, although we have never seen the risen Christ physically, 
Nevertheless, we can and must believe him. Those with this faith, in fact, are called blessed, genuinely happy, genuinely accepted by God. So you can summarize John's paradigm for his gospel in this way. John is saying, yes, we the disciples are eyewitnesses to his glory. We've seen him with our physical eyes. We have touched him. But your faith will be no less blessed than ours. Blessed are those who do not share the eyewitness experience of the disciples, but who share in the same confession of Jesus. But that raises a question, doesn't it? At least it does for me. Certainly the apostles had a great reason to believe. I mean, they could see him. They could touch him. Um, but what is the basis of our faith? If it is not sight, if it is not touch, how can we, how can John expect us to have the same substance, the same kind of faith, the same confidence the original eyewitnesses have? Well, that leads us to our next point in verse 30 through 31. The purposeful composition of John's gospel. The first thing we get is this description of the content of John's gospel in verse 30. It says, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. In other words, John says that there was a lot that he could have included in this gospel that uh, that was left on the cutting floor. Right? He didn't bring everything there was um, to his final um, edition. That everything Jesus did was written. Not because it didn't happen or is unimportant, but because John has specific goals. He has a specific audience with a specific purpose. He's very intentional about what he includes. Flip a page over, probably in your Bible, chapter 21, 25. John says something similar here. He says, now there also are many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written about them. So John's saying, there's a lot out there that I could have included. And not everything is included in this gospel but, look at verse 31. But these are written. What are the these? What did he just say? Many other signs in the presence of the disciple. Which signs are not written, but these are written. So what is the these? These are the, the signs. But these, these signs have been written. John's saying he intentionally included specific signs of the Messiah in his gospel for a specific purpose. So what are signs? We're going to be unfolding a theology of signs as we work through this gospel, but for now, signs were not simply miraculous. They're not just miracles. They're often miraculous, but not always. Signs were rather symbolic works which manifested the glory and the person in the work that Jesus would accomplish. Good example, changing uh, 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 the multiplied of the bread for the 5,000. What was it a sign of? It was a sign that he is the bread. It was to teach and communicate about him. It was pointing to him. That's what signs are. And John's saying he specifically selected, and there are seven signs, chapters 2 through 11, that reveal this Messiah, reveal the glory of this Messiah that John has specifically selected to include in his gospel. For a specific purpose. 
John's an eyewitness, and he's recorded these particular signs. And then the latter chapter is what these signs portray, the death and the resurrection of the Messiah. But um, he's included in this gospel. Now the question is, well, why? What is his purpose? What is John so intent on? Why is he selecting these signs? What is he after? Look at verse 31. But these signs have been written so that you may believe that the Christ, the Son of God, is none other than Jesus. And that by believing you may have life in his name. And we could spend a long time here. We could unpack each of the words in this verse. But to do so would require the whole gospel. <laughs> That's what the gospel is. And this is the summary of it. And uh, we'll be unpacking that as we, as we go along. But as far as his purpose goes, John included all that he did in order to call his readers to faith genuine faith. He does this by portraying Jesus in all of his glory through the signs that he performed and what the signs pointed to in the death and resurrection so that his believers that his readers would believe. But notice there's a specific content that John is after. It's not just about Jesus. I believe in Jesus. It is Literally, that the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, is Jesus. And that's a very full package. It's not just intellectual assent. It implies everything this person, Jesus, is and everything he accomplished. It's all to be believed and received. It's, a, it's not just, yeah, I believe Jesus is the Messiah. It's a package that is included here um, that is demanded. It includes all that Jesus is as the God-man. And includes all that he accomplished as the Christ. Let me just make a few comments here on some of the background, probably what John is doing. Who is he writing to? Um, it's most likely that John is writing to unbelieving Jewish uh, people scattered throughout the Roman world. Um, it's evangelism is the purpose of his gospel, calling them to faith. His aim is to demonstrate that the Christ, the long-awaited Messiah, is none other than Jesus. And that would have been a very Jewish question. Who is the Messiah? Which one is the Messiah is the question that Jews would have. And John is coming along saying, yes, that long-awaited Messiah that you've anticipated, which you see this anticipation all through the Gospel of John, and yes, it's misguided, yes, they don't know it includes the death and resurrection, but this long-anticipated Messiah, John saying, let me show, is Jesus. It is the man, Jesus. And here's how we know it. And that's what he included. John wrote so that his readers would come to a true faith, which confesses Jesus to be their Lord and God, to be the Son of God, which means the representative of God to man, the Messiah, the Savior of the world question is, why does John want their faith so badly? Why is he so intent on their believing? Well, he has another goal. He has an ultimate goal. Look what it says. It's because there is eternal life in a trusted Savior. So that by believing, you may have life in his name. It's because faith in Jesus is the only God-appointed means to eternal life. It's the only one. It's the exclusive one. John wants that for his, for his readers. So now this, this 
connects us back. Let's, let's ask now. So how does this connect with verse 29? Why did I begin with Thomas? Why did I begin with this story of Thomas? And then there's now this purpose statement. It doesn't look like they're connected. They're usually separated in your, in your Bible. Most of your Bibles begin verse 30 with the word and or now. If you have a NASB, it has it pretty literally. It's the word therefore. Therefore. So this is how it goes. Verse 29. Those are blessed who do not see any of Jesus' signs with their physical eyes as the disciples did and yet believe. Verse 30. Therefore, these things have been written so that you might believe. In other words, verses 30 and 31 explain how it is possible that one is blessed who believes not based on sight. This is the question from earlier. Yes, the disciples had the basis of eyewitness. They could see it and touch it. But what about us? How can John expect us to believe? What is our basis of faith? And John tells us here that the basis of faith for all those that believe after the apostles is in what has been written. That is it. In other words, in this statement, John tells us that there is a sufficient basis for faith in what has been written in this gospel. Listen, just as much as if you beheld it with your eyes and touched it with your hands, you are no less privileged and advantaged than the disciples themselves. There's just as much a sufficient basis. John composed a gospel purposefully selecting his material with the single purpose that you would believe in Jesus. Well, why? Because this is the only possible basis for your faith. None of us have seen or ever will see the risen Christ in this life until he returns or until we go to heaven. And none of us will see with our physical eyes what he performed. But these have been written so that you would believe. And those who do are blessed. So what we have is not the next best thing. Yeah, the disciples had the best, and we get the next best thing. No. It is of equal reliability. Hear that? It's of equal reliability. And of equal, the basis of an equal certain faith as the apostles had. These are written so that you might have the same confession the apostles did. Now you say, Michael, how can that be? It doesn't, still is not computing. And this is the key for this lesson. This is what I want us to think on. If you've missed everything else, listen to this. It is because faith looks beyond what can be seen with the physical eyes and touched with the hands. Many of those who beheld Jesus with their eyes, touched him with their hands, saw all of his works, did not believe. They saw all the signs he did, they heard all of his words, and they rejected him. Something more is needed than physical sight. And conversely, we can have a clearer sight of Christ by faith in what has been written than those without faith who saw Jesus with their very eyes. That's what 
what this gospel does. It gives us a portrait of Jesus and all of his glory so that we behold it by faith. And in doing that, we behold him more clearly than those without faith who saw it with their very eyes. So that's John's purpose. And that's the purpose of my study. That you would believe that the Christ, the Son of God, is none other than Jesus, and that by believing you may have life in his name. It's true blessedness, and it is only possible through what has been written. So you say, Michael, that's great, but I'm a believer. Most of us in here are Christians. We're believers. So does that mean every message you're going to bring is going to be evangelistic? Calling for initial faith in Jesus? And certainly that would be one of the applications of it. But it misses the point if that's the main application for believers. Because faith, as we're going to see in John, is portrayed to us, it's not merely an initial faith. It is one that grows in understanding. It's one that grows in depth as it perseveres in following Jesus. Many of the Gospel of John, we're going to see, make initial professions of faith, and they turn away from it later. It's not the initial profession that matters. It's the continuation after it. It's those who remain in Christ's words who are truly his disciples. And as we're also going to see, the disciples come to a faith in Christ very early on in this gospel. But as we move through, we hear the disciples, it says over and over, and they believed. And they believed. And they believed. And so I take that to mean, not that the disciples lost their salvation and got it again, or that they really didn't believe before, but that their first belief was a, a first step in this journey of knowing the Messiah. And their first faith was proven by the fact that they continued. It was followed by many newer and deeper experiences of faith as they watched Christ and listened to his words. And that is what I'm after for us and for me. So that means the main application is not going to be simply believe in Jesus, where the focus is on your action of believing. Although that is important, we are responsible for, for, for believing. Rather, the focus is on believe in Jesus, where he's the focus, and hold him up and all of his glory and who he is and what he accomplished and what he spoke, so that that would be the single focus and gaze in our heart, because when that is... That's when faith comes alive. It's as we behold him. It's as we believe. That is going to be the goal. The goal is that we would come away seeing and savoring the glories of Christ to use John Piper's phrase. The goal is that we would come to know him as the perfect mediator between God and man. It's that we would see the glories of his love is that we would embrace the glories of his condescension. It is that we would love him more and more as our Lord and our God. That is what we are after in this study. That is the essence of faith, and that is the goal of our salvation. It's beholding the glory of Christ. I invite you to turn over with me to 2 Corinthians. 
Paul says something very similar here. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Say, Michael, how is faith connected with the glory of Christ? How can you say the essence of faith and the object of faith is beholding the glories of Christ? 2 Corinthians chapter 4, look at verse 3. And if our gospel, this word about Christ, is veiled, it's veiled only to those who are perishing, unbelievers. In their case, the God of this world, who is that? It's the devil. The God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers. To see it? Unbelievers. They are not believing. To keep them what? To keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone into our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. In other words, the essence of unbelief is blindness to the glory. You hear the gospel and you say, I would rather go watch TV. Who cares? Not glorious. You don't see his glory as it's revealed in the gospel. That is unbelief. That's what unbelief is. And conversion is none other than God shining his light of the truth of the glory of Christ into the heart of a person so that they come away saying, I believe it's Jesus. He's all that matters. He's glorious. That is faith. It's the craving of every believer. Show us Christ. It's what we sing. Show us Christ. Show us Christ. That's what we want. The sight of the glory of God as it's revealed in Jesus is what awaits us to be fully experienced in heaven. This is what we're saved for. Look over at John chapter 17. John chapter 17. You know, it's the high priestly prayer. Look at verse 24. John 17, 24. Jesus prays, Father, I desire that they also, whom you've given to me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you've given me because you have loved me before the foundation of the world. It's the essence of heaven. That's what heaven is. But it must begin now, not by sight, but by faith. Flip now over to John chapter 1, verse 14. We probably know this verse by heart. John chapter 1, verse 14. Yes, that's coming in heaven, but it must begin now. John 1.14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So that's the testimony of the eyewitnesses, Michael. 
Well, yes, it is, but the glory they beheld was not with their physical eyes, you see? What was the glory they beheld? It was the glory of His grace and His truth. That is not seen with the physical eyes. That is seen with the eyes of faith. They're saying that we beheld, and you too may behold the glories of this Christ by faith, the glories of His grace and truth. Only faith can see this, no matter if you live then or live now. So I've been reading a work by John Owen called, called The Glories of Christ. If you don't know, Owen is one of my heroes, one of my dead mentors. Um, he's awesome. So just by way of application, I would like to read a few quotes and points he makes about this beholding of the glory of Christ. And um, just apply it to us and apply it to our, our study. Almost done. First, beholding Christ by faith now is a prerequisite to beholding it in heaven. John Owen says, No man shall ever behold the glory of Christ by sight hereafter in heaven, who does not in some measure behold it here by faith. In other words, what makes heaven heaven? It's because Jesus is to be looked upon in unhindered glory. That's what heaven is. But the only ones going there are those who have already beheld it here by faith. Again, Owen says, Most men say with confidence, living and dying, that they desire to be with Christ and to behold His glory. But they can give no reason why they should desire any such thing. Only that they think this somewhat better than to be in that evil condition which otherwise they must be cast in forever when they can be here no more. In other words, they say, well, being with Christ in his glory is better than going to hell. That's what they say. The pretended desires of many to behold the glory of Christ in heaven who have no view of it by faith while they are in this world are nothing but self-deceiving imaginations. In other words, if you have no desire to know him, see him as wonderful now you will not see it in heaven that's what Owen says so the study is important because this is the object of true faith and this will be the object of delight of believers for eternity why do you desire to go to heaven there's many good reasons that people give reunion with loved ones no sickness, no disease, no death no suffering, no eternal torment all are true. But do you desire to go to heaven to be where Jesus is and look upon his glory? You will not unless you've begun to behold it here by faith. Again, Owen says, that soul which could be satisfied without it and that cannot be eternally satisfied with it is not partaker of the efficacy of his intercession. What is Owen saying? He's saying, if you could have heaven with all the good things in it, eternal life, reunion with family, no sickness, no death, but Christ wouldn't be there, would you be satisfied? Flip it around. If you went to heaven and it's only Christ, there's none of those other things, it's just Christ, would you be dissatisfied and discontent for eternity? This is the test of a true believer. It is those who have seen him now in part, by faith, as all glorious, who will see him as such a 
And the way we prepare for that day is by laboring now to know him. As we study this together, and why do you do devotions in the morning? This is it. Yeah, we want to be instructed how to live, but this is the number one goal, to know him, to love him, to grow in affection for him. Which leads us to number two. None of us loves and desires the glories of Christ as we ought. I am not here to put doubt in anyone's mind, nor am I here to discourage you in any way. My only point is that if you're a true believer, the deepest desire of your heart is I want to know him. Yeah, I don't. I was convicted of this study of this man. I do not desire to be with him as I ought. I do desire it. I want to know it more. I do want to come to know him more. So the call and application for you is to labor for this with all of your might. Labor to know him. Labor to grow in your love for him. Labor to see his excellency and his absolute deity and his equality with the Father in his submission, in his condescension, in his selfless love to the point of death. Labor for this. What else is there to spend our energies on? I mean... There's nothing more glorious than this, and yet there's nothing that we so quickly abandon in the glories of Christ. How quickly we trade off spending time to know and commune with and see the glories of Christ for the husks and ashes of TV and social media when glory is sitting right there beside us. We're so quick to abandon this. I am so quick to abandon this. Once more, Owen says, it is from our own sloth and darkness that we do not enjoy more visits of this grace, and that the dawnings of glory do not shine more on our souls. So I encourage you to labor for this every day. Labor for this in our study. This is what we're after. There's nothing else that even comes close to this. Finally, you might be thinking, Michael, this sounds good, but does it have any concrete bearing on our lives? And it just sounds like for abstract and just personal meditation, but what does this have to do with just daily life as a believer? And we're going to see as we go through this gospel, there are massive applications for our lives, and this is number one. I want to show you why it's number one. Go back to 2 Corinthians. We will close with this verse. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. This is massive relevance for our daily lives. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord. There it is. Beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image. From one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. These things are not in competition with one another. It's not, are you going to focus on practical Christian living, or are you going to focus on the glory of Christ? It is that we behold, we become what we behold. It's as we behold His glory that we are being transformed into that same direction. Yes, we're going to talk about the Christian life, but seeing and savoring Christ is the root. It's the source of all Christian living. This is where we begin. This is where we continue. And this is where we end. This is it. So will you take this journey with me through the Gospel of John? 
encourage you to labor. We're going to labor together. Um, not just in this study, I encourage you. Go after this. At home. Study the Word. Know Christ more and more. And uh, it's as we believe that we have eternal life. So let me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the clarity of your word. Thank you that we are no less privileged than the first beholders of it because the thing that faith needs to rest on is just as clearly portrayed here as it was when Christ was walking on earth. It's the glories of his person, what he accomplished, who he is that may be seen. Oh, Lord, let us not be content with an initial profession. But Lord, that we would remain in your words and so prove to be your disciples. Thank you, Lord, for Christ. I ask that you continue to open our eyes, prepare us for the service to come. And Lord, we just commit this study of John into your hands and ask that you will just do a mighty work in our lives. We love you, Father. Thank you. We ask all this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ.